A very warm welcome to today's guest, Dustin Smith, professor in corporate social responsibility, champion fencer, and all-around very kind human who has a lot of advice for us today on how we as individuals can make an impact on the community uh, by learning to vote with our dollar, um, as well as how fencing relates to strategy in life and in business, and lots of thoughts on overcoming fear, imposter syndrome, and making it through graduate school. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Archives for Aliens, a podcast recorded for future life on Earth, planet Earth, consciousness, creativity, the nature of reality, cool people making things, and life outside the box. What makes you tick? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right. So, wow. What we, oh my God. All right. It looks like something that should be interconnected. What do we have? We have like a crazy owl perched on a tree on the right, maybe a long lost friend on the left and they fit together, but there's something blocking them. And honestly, it kind of looks like the coronavirus, right? They are separated by a coronavirus. Well, in this case, let's just call it hardship. All right, so I guess split. <clears throat> Split is how I would describe that. Man, that went, I instantly went dark. <laughs> I was thinking this before this interview. I'm like, I'm not going to go dark. Right. But it was there. Okay. How do you think this relates to something that you might talk about tonight? Oh my gosh. Well, I think, I mean, the big thing on everybody's mind, first of all, Merry COVIDmas and Happy New Corona Year. Right. Uh, I guess what is it, the third right now? So, I mean, obviously, the, everything on anybody's mind is, the trials, tribulations, things that we went through over the last year, 2020, with regards to the coronavirus. So yeah, our own personal experiences and our own personal perspectives is definitely something that I wanted to, uh, wanted to hit on. So that separation there, I guess, is kind of where I was going. So how, how do you define yourself? Um, is it teacher, professor, researcher? Oh my gosh, wow. Starting off with the big questions here. Um, and this is an interesting phenomenon, very interesting phenomenon, all right? Um, a lot of research, sociological research, shows that men or people who identify as men, um, we tend to identify more as our career. <laughs> so we would say, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a college professor, I'm an educator, I'm an artist or a photographer or a firefighter or a doctor or something like that. I don't know. Okay. And I actually tend to fall into that gap um, or I used to at least. I mean, I was for this entire time, you know, or for all of these years that I was uh, you know, working to get my PhD and then eventually uh, uh, starting to teach at the university level. I've been teaching at the university for over seven years now. You know, I've always just it just kind of thought of myself as, as an educator. See, but then 
that that becomes a problem because then what happens when you're when you want to change careers or when your life changes you know when you no longer see yourself or you no longer are an educator like how does that blow or how does that hurt your self-concept you know and so i've actually been trying to get away from that and think about uh more about kind of the internal qualities that uh, that make me who i am rather than just the career which is what everybody does so um i don't know you know i would say that i am uh trying to become more of an optimist i am a good friend you know i care about i'm somebody that cares about the people around me i'm somebody that appreciates uh kind of the absurdity of life universe and i try to find humor in everything okay? and i approach probably way too many things in life too flippantly with way too much sarcasm and i probably should take things a lot more seriously okay but i don't right and so that's kind of where i'm at right now i'm oh my gosh i just described myself as a man child uh <laughs> there you go uh i am a 34 year old man child all right. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot to be said in being able to approach life with a sense of humor, though. It's something I'm trying to acquire. Oh, my gosh. I just I, I look at the absurdity and just the random chaos that goes on around us. And I can't I think if I didn't laugh and make fun and uh, be sarcastic at, uh, at at life, you know, I would I would go crazy. Um, so. Some people call it a coping mechanism, and you know what? You're probably right. <laughs> so if you were to make fun of yourself for the last year of what you're calling unproductivity, <laughs> black hole, what, what would you say? Oh, no. It, oh, my gosh. What would I do to make fun of myself? I would make fun of my incredibly bad jogging form, right? I, uh, so the, the sport that I normally do is fencing, uh, love to fence, uh, but everything's been closed down. I mean, it's almost been a straight, a full year since I've fenced competitively. Right. Um, and so I've actually tried to take up several other activities in the meantime, <laughs> running being one of them. Uh, and I try not to do it in broad daylight because I think I scare people, uh, because they see this long-legged, pasty white person that uh, looks like they're convulsing. Um, and I feel like they're probably trying to call the EMTs on me. So, but yeah, that's uh, all of my random, you know, trying to stay active stuff. That's been, uh, been really interesting. Yeah, I know that's been such a challenge. While we're on the the topic of fencing, I've heard I've heard that you're quite quite an acknowledged fencer. Can you tell us <laughs> a little bit more. Acknowledged by like my mom. <laughs> like my son fences. Yeah. Have you won a bunch of awards? Is that true? I've won I've won tournaments. Yeah, I've won I've won tournaments. Sure. Um, I've done done well. Lost a lost a lot of bouts that I probably should have uh, should have won. Um, you know, totally big fish, small town or small pond type stuff you know um i do pretty well like in the midwest division and things like that but hey the midwest is is a bigger fish than just the city <laughs> well compared to like 
New York, DC, oof, uh, Notre Dame, uh, Texas. I mean, they have all huge fencing communities. So that's uh, in intense competition here. So I would be a very middling or <laughs> uh, low tier fencer uh, uh, in New York. But uh, no, love the sport, love the sport. And we actually, uh, here in St. Louis, uh, we have a pretty active and great, great welcoming fencing community. Okay? A lot of people don't know about the sport. They think it's weird or they don't understand it or it's just super elitist or something like that. But it is absolutely amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. I, um, oh my gosh. So I started back in, uh, back in grad school. All right. And uh, as with most things that uh, uh, some men do, it was because of a woman. Right? I had a crush on this uh, Air Force cadet right? and she, uh, she fenced. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to be this cool dude. I'm going to like impress her. I want to, you know, hang out with her. So I went to her fencing club and I tried it out and absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, it is, like I said, I mean, such a cool sport. There's athleticism. The people are just an, like enough of a nerd that, you know, you can jive with them really well. And for some people, uh, it is incredibly competitive, uh, incredibly competitive. And overall, it's just, it's just fun. I mean, I'm sure you've had moments in your life where you've just wanted to stab your friend <laughs> right so it's almost cathartic in a way yeah i mean it looks really fun yeah people i mean i mean i think the only thing that like is really holding it back is that people don't really know like they don't really understand you know what's going on there's yelling and lights going on and and people uh, uh people attacking each other but sometimes the point counts and sometimes it doesn't and then you know, the director is speaking in French and what have you. And so it just becomes kind of like this overwhelming experience. Okay. But in reality, man, it's not, it's not that bad. It's, it's, it's super cool. Like, how do you get started? How do you just try it? You, um, honestly, um, I walked into the club that day. Um, I told them that I was interested in fencing and they're like, oh, cool. Right. So they put a sword in my hand, they put a jacket on me and they started showing me moves. Right. And that is, that is really it. Uh, and I was actually pretty old. I mean, I think I was like 22 when I started. All right. So I was actually uh, you know, somewhat older compared to people that have been, you know, doing sports since they were nine, 10 or something like that. So yeah, just walk in, you know, and we have something for everybody. The there's actually divisions that you can compete in um, that are, you know, the kind of the general division, kids division, the 50, 60, 70, 80 year old division. Okay. So it's, there's divisions basically, uh, basically for everybody, no matter how old you are, uh, wheelchair division. Okay. If you are, uh, you know, don't have full mobility or something like that, you can compete in the wheelchair division. Super, super cool. That's interesting. That's really good to know. How, how do you think your relationship with the sport has influenced other things that you do in your life? Oh my gosh. I will. I was actually thinking about this the other day. Right. And 
you know, growing up, you know, elementary school, high school, like it all kind of, kind of sucks <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's difficult dealing with people, you know, uh, you know, getting broken down all the time and, you know, trying to find something you're good at. And then just discovering yourself and just discovering this sense of self-confidence. Okay. And in terms of like physical sports and things like that, you know, I was your stereotypical kind of nerdy kid. All right. I was, I did theater, you know, I did, uh, I did the announcements for our school and stuff like, I mean, a class president type thing, you know, all that uh, competed in on quiz team or what you'd call quiz bowl, I guess. So I was kind of like the stereotypical nerd. All right. And here, when I started fencing and really getting into it and really practicing, um, and I started winning, I started beating people like in a physical contest, right? And it was very like confidence building because <laughs> I'd never been like in this situation before, you know, where your people were kind of like singling you out as like, oh yeah, watch out for that guy. He's the threat, you know, <laughs> or like sizing you up at tournaments, you know, or watching your bouts at tournaments because they're trying to figure out like your moves. I'd never been that guy before. All right. And so the, the confidence that you get knowing that if you apply yourself to something like this, to maybe something that you might not have been good at in the past, but you're passionate about, you know, you actually, you can improve. You can get better with that, with that, uh, that determination, that, that grit. So fencing, and that's why, oh my gosh, I think, I wish I would have been really seriously involved in sports um, a lot earlier. I mean, not just, not even, not even sports, but just you know, clubs, other activities. I kind of bounced around a bunch when I was a kid and I wish I would have gotten more involved in something when I was a kid because I can see now the value of just building confidence in, in young children, building confidence in, in teenagers by being able to accomplish, showing that you can accomplish something. So no, definitely, oh my gosh, definitely had a positive impact on my life. Um, really teaches you a lot of discipline. I mean, you're working with your club, you're working with your team. So there's people relying on you. There's people that uh, uh, you know, need you. So just being consistent, consistently showing up and then and working with them and then being able to persevere, you know, being able to work through pain points, being able to work through things that are difficult and keep going. So yeah, definitely a positive. You said relationships too. How's that impacted my relationship? Um, that's a really interesting question, you know, so something about fencing too is, um, it's a very collegial sport. Like you meet a lot of the same people at, at all the same tournaments, right? Uh, especially when you're competing in the division, you wind up kind of, uh, seeing the same athletes all over the place. All right. And I mean, I wouldn't say friends, but you become colleagues with them and, whatnot. I mean, you ask about their siblings and how their husbands and wives are doing and, and things like that. And kind of you develop this camaraderie. So it's this sense uh, of what we would call in business of co-opetition. You know, we want to build the community. We want to work together. But then on the strip, you know, you want to pummel them. <laughs> right. And then being able to do that being able to win or beat them or, you know, put everything you have into that gold medal bout to beat that person, 
but then go be able to have a beer with them afterwards, right, is, is amazing, right? So just kind of huh. uh, that, that, it's not a contentious, but that, that kind of professional courtesy, I guess, right? Teaches you not to internalize that competition to the point where you're, you're not fencing, you're, you know, you're fencing the fencer. You're not fencing that, per I guess. I don't know. It's weird to say. It's kind of a weird thing, yeah. thing to think about, but yeah. No, that sounds like a great metaphor for life. And I know a lot of people kind of don't get to that phase, but especially with such a small community like that. Oh yeah. I mean, gosh, you could put that, you could apply that same logic to anything. I mean, we're, we're in this together, at least for the most part, <laughs> I mean, working together as a, as, as a town, a community, a state, a country, the world, a, a, a species, okay? um, you know, and so yes, there is an element of self-interest and we're striving to accomplish our own goals and everything else. But at the end of the day, I mean, how can we work together uh, at the same time to improve everyone's lives around us? Has your fencing taught you anything about um, your research or given you thoughts in like business? Yeah, actually. Um, so this is really cool. Um, so we call the sport of fencing, we call it physical chess, right? Because you are constantly um, evaluating the other person. So chess is as much of a head game Okay, as it is, uh, you know, understanding the logic behind the movement of the pieces and stuff like that. So understanding what your opponent is going to do, right? Which is why a good fencer is going to, when they're not fencing, they're going to stand off on the side of the strip and watch people fence so they can understand kind of the intricacies of their game. And it's the same thing while you are, while you're fencing them, you, you probe, you might do an attack that you know is has no hope of of landing or something like that or you know is going to be easily defended against okay but you want to see how they react okay you're asking questions and you're receiving answers okay and so once you've learned enough about your opponent okay then you can start to string together your moves right and it's the same thing in business actually so in business we talk about something called competitive dynamics, right? Which is the study of how um, competitors, so businesses and environment, act and then react to one another, right? So we can understand that if a business, okay, uh, um, or if I, if I act over in one area, Okay, maybe let's say I introduce a, a product line or something like that, a new product line, new bell or whistle, or new uh, type of gum with an extended flavor crystal or something like that. And then the other business reacts, but reacts too much. So in fencing, if you, the way you defend is what we call a parry, right? So you sweep your blade over and you knock the blade out of the way. But if you overcompensate, if you push that blade too far, they're going to be able to wheel back. You're leaving yourself vulnerable, or vulnerable. So they'll wheel back and be able to hit you. All right. And so it's things like that in business. So if you overcompensate in your reaction, you've left yourself uh, exposed. Okay. And it also teaches us how to ask questions in business in order to find out, you know, whether or not, okay, 
even if it's not a competitor, but like our customers, our, our suppliers, our other stakeholders and things like that. So a lot of the thought process, okay, behind, okay, how am I going to figure out what I need to know? Um, how am I going to respond to this person? A lot of that kind of underlying uh, framework thought process can actually be applied to applied to a business scenario or a lot of things, uh, a lot of things in life. So man, it's super cool. It's super yeah, cool to like think when about, to yeah. take action or not take action. Yeah. When do you take, right. When do you stay back and let it happen? Okay. When do you sacrifice a point or something in order to put yourself in a better position? Things like that. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It definitely sounds like a mental workout too. I know I, I got that with climbing. Climbing is kind of a mental workout. Oh my gosh. Climbing. Good for you. Holy. <laughs> that is so hard. Oh, what a workout. But yeah, you're right. So with, with you and climbing, I mean, you have like a route that you need to go up the wall, right? And you're, um, uh, you know, your own physical capabilities and the length of your arms, your own strength, things like that. And you have to solve this problem based upon the variables that you have. Right. Yeah. I mean, the main difference though, and one reason I love climbing is because the wall doesn't move. <laughs> when you're dealing with a, a constantly changing system, a whole nother person that that's insane to me. That's awesome right. though. The wall doesn't move, but that doesn't make it any <laughs> less easy, right? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's consistent. It's there. It's you know, it can't change its mind. Yeah, I mean it's like um any sort of and I know there's a lot of people that are gonna out there that would yell at me when I when I say this, but it is a martial art. Even though you know we're dressed up in white uniforms with knee-high socks, jumping around the strip here, um, but because it's a martial art, you have to read your opponent. I mean, just like any other sport, like boxing or something like that, you're constantly getting feedback. But then, like you said, I mean, you're able to adapt, um, and you have to adapt. Okay, because as soon as you, if I do three moves in a row. They, they're going to understand what my intentions are, and then they're going to be able to, because every move in fencing has a counter. There's no one way to win, right? So they're going to uh, take that, uh, that move uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, subsequently deceive me or, 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 or beat me in some way. That's all super interesting. Can we go back and talk a little bit more about your career? Oh, for sure. How you got to be doing what it is that you're doing. What was, was the inspiration, the path? Oh my gosh. Well, let me tell you, um, I was like a lot of people out there, you know, there was nothing special about me in terms of, you know, how I chose my career path. You know, some people, um, just take after their parents and go and do what they, uh, uh, you know, do, or maybe they had an inspiration as a child and they, they've always wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or something like that. Okay. I was one of the many people that had absolutely no idea. Okay. And it puzzled me <laughs> like to no end. I mean, I was looking into all sorts of crazy careers and I agonized over it. Um, I was looking at, you know, obviously teacher, chef, uh, doctor, whatever, radio personality, even though I realize I don't have the talent for it. I, 
um, all sorts of things. And so, I mean, I even did like the career tests at school and, and, and nothing, um, nothing came out of it and everything. Um, and I just, I got to college and I was still just back and forth, just like a leaf in the wind. Um, and I took a couple of courses and uh, I was taking a science course actually. Uh, and this was just like a, a, a basic science course, but there was a project. I remember this was very early on. I think it was a sophomore at this time. Um, and our professor at, uh, was really cool, really loved her. She had us do this project where um, we got to pick any sort of science topic and we got to create a lesson plan and, uh, and present on it, all right? And I thought that was cool. So I did like, I went full nerd and I talked about Star Trek and antimatter and how antimatter and matter, like a, a propulsion drive could actually like theoretically could exist, okay? Uh, and how it would uh, how it would work, and so I did like this half hour lecture upon freaking antimatter <laughs> to a group of college students, and I'm talking about like how protons, you know, you would uh, you know you would accelerate this proton and slam it into something in order to uh, you know create a, uh, this reaction that you would need and whatnot. And I really enjoyed that. Like I I was sitting there thinking one day, I'm like, man, I actually really like learning about just researching stuff and talking about it with other people you know i was always like i was always that kid that uh annoyed and annoyed other people when i was like oh man did you ever did you hear about this or let me tell you about this you know i was always like the annoying kind of like i don't want to say know it all but somebody that was always excited about another topic mm -hmm. um i relate to you on that one right i'm like that was my projects <laughs> <laughs> you just like go in so deep you know, when you, when you want to learn about something new, like I'll go hours on YouTube learning about like how to do something or, you know, learning about a new subject area. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I just, for some reason, I, I, I had like a bunch of credits. So I studied business okay, in, uh, in college. I had a bunch of like credits that applied to a business degree. So I'm just like, oh, I guess I got to get a business degree so they don't go to waste. Right. Um, and that kind of shaped my, uh, 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 you know, my general professional direction. Uh, I worked for a, a few companies. Um, I worked for Boeing for a little bit up in Seattle. Uh, I worked for this company called Washington Closure Hanford. All right. That is in Washington state. All right. And what they do is they um, were one of the companies helping to remediate the Hanford nuclear reservation which is this big area where we made a lot of the uranium and plutonium for our nuclear weapons arsenal. And it just left around like not a lot of good stuff, like millions of gallons of just horrible uh, chemicals in leaky cisterns and things like that and radioactive dirt. Right. And so we That's were helping. Terrifying. Oh my gosh. It was, it was actually kind of cool. Like <laughs> going out and seeing like all the old 1960s reactors you know, it's just like something from like an old video game or something like that. It was super cool. Uh, but we did, oh my gosh, this company, we did like so many cool things. Like we were, we helped to relocate like endangered bats <laughs> and stuff that we found in like this underground, like concrete bunker or whatnot. And I don't know, I got inter uh, interested in the transformative power of organizations at this point. Um, and this was also around 2009, 
uh, which was uh, at the end of the, uh, we're still like in the reels of the, of the housing market crash. So let me tell you, trying to find permanent job, you know, uh, at this time was, was insane. You know, uh, my anxiety was just like through the roof, just trying to secure like really a long-term thing because I'm just bouncing around. So I'm like, screw it. I'm gonna go to grad school, <laughs> just do it. Um, I went to Washington State University. Um, and I remember, <laughs> I remember um, uh, my, uh, one of the professors there, I was talking to him uh, about my kind of idea. Like, I'm like, you know, I kind of like this idea. I kind of want to research, you know, something around kind of corporate social responsibility, you know, because I just didn't want to do, I didn't want to, I had no interest in just, you know, like finance or, or anything like that, or just kind of your basic business subjects. Like I wanted to research something that I thought really had something like a transformative power. Um, and so I, I told him, you know, I want to research corporate social responsibility. And I remember he kind of looked at me with his professory look, his goatee. He's like, well, you know, Ashton, I think that's kind of played out. <laughs> this is back in 2013. I'm like, screw you, man. I've made a career out of it uh, all, after all this time. Um, yeah, so I graduated and then uh, subsequently been, you know, doing research uh, in the area uh, ever since. So you stuck with it. That's yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting. I mean, if you asked me, and I think this is true for basically everybody. Like, if did you think you were going to be here at this point in your life? And like, no, no. You know, you always think like, oh, I'm going to be like in New York. I'm going to be like a trapeze artist. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to be like a an ice cream tester for Hagen Dazs. Or I don't know. Somebody has like their idea about where their life is going to take. So in business, we call this intend, intended versus emergent strategy, hmm. right? We have an intended direction that we want to go, okay? But then whatever, something happens along the way, life happens along the way, and then we have this emergent thing, and that's ultimately where we go. And it's usually a combination between what we intend and then what happens is what our realized strategy is or our realized life path is, okay? And so that's where we're here, and like I think... You know, a lot of us uh, yeah, ex experience this. I mean, did you think right now, I mean, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to be, you know, interviewing people for a podcast for aliens in the future. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I thought that I was going to do some form of medical research and then retire as an artist and do this. So I thought this was coming way later. Right. I noticed you, uh, you integrate a lot of science into your art. You know, so you've kind of, I, it looks like you've kind of blended that passion too into your kind of emergent yet realized strategy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I love, I love that you're so open to the change. I think there've been times in my life where it was really scary, but now I'm kind of just, now I don't make even such concrete plans because I become more open to the emergent part of it, I guess. Right. You know, I've always been the person that's always, I've actually always kind of fought it a little bit, but this is the thing. I've never regretted it. I've always fought it. I'm the type of, I'm, I feel I have some inertia, you know, I kind of want to stay put a little bit or I don't want to, you know, change my plans, but you know, ultimately I've always done it and I've always, uh, I've always been thankful that I have. 
you know, I've always, I've never really regretted any, any specific thing. So yeah, I'm glad where, where things have, have wound up so far at least. Yeah, same here, same here. And there's no way I could have orchestrated it otherwise. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no way. I mean, I mean, how many people out there, their life plan has followed, you know, exactly, exactly where I wanted to be, exactly where I wanted to go. I mean, things happen, life happens. You know, right. you meet people and they influence you in different ways. Yeah. How, how do you think you were able to trust yourself during that time period when you kept studying corporate social responsibility? Oh man, trust myself. In, in what way? Like, well, you kept doing it. So man, at this point, um, let me tell you, it's, it was a wild ride. Um, and for any grad student out there, all right, that is listening to this, all right, um, we had something, or there's a phenomenon, it's called imposter syndrome, right? And imposter syndrome is this feeling that you shouldn't be there. Like there was a mistake made, like maybe you slipped through the cracks or it's going to be a little bit and then they're going to find out that uh you know you don't you're not right for the job or something like that okay or you know you shouldn't be there and when i started grad school and i still I, i'll be honest i still do i still do i have horrendous imposter syndrome but when i was in grad school you know i had i was you know i was i actually started grad school pretty young um uh for a phd program and here i am i'm with these other these other people that have had so much more life experience than me you know i was in my early 20s they were in their uh, uh mid late 30s you know they had had these 10 year long careers um you know they had families and all they brought all of this stuff to the table and here i am i'm like oh hey guys what's going on <laughs> like this crazy little this you know little punk kid in this phd program and so I was always thinking, oh my gosh, you know, they're going to kick, they're going to find out that I'm not like legit and they're going to kick me out. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I would always, um, I'd never, you know, I was never like a 4.0 student. I, you know, I was never perfect academically, but um, I, I, I had the grit to stick with it. Um, and so I knew I had a, a bit of confidence. I, I, I knew that if I stuck with something that I, I could complete it. All right. Um, and that's, that's what I did. I was just drawing off that, uh, that previous confidence that you kind of built up. And it was in a setting that I was familiar with. I mean, academics, that's been my passion for, for so long, like all through college and, and, and things like that. Um, you, I've, you need people in your life. And I had always been fiercely independent, all right? Always considered myself just like a loner. I don't, I don't need anybody. I'm good on my own, you know, whatever, <laughs> stay away from me, that type of thing. Man, once in a while, you need somebody that can tell you, you got this, all right? You, you can do this, okay? Just keep at it, just keep going. You know, it is the importance of having a mentor or a positive force in your life. Because let me tell you, man, especially like, I'm sure you're like this creatively, or you've experienced this creatively. There are a lot of people that just want to tear you down or tear your work apart. 
you know, it's like they get that schadenfreude about seeing people fail, you know, so you need every, you need that person, everyone, everyone needs that person that can tell them you can, you can do this, right? And I had those people, thankfully, we had a good cohort, we had good, talented professors that, you know, had been through all of this, that knew exactly what we were going through. And they were not afraid to say, hey, listen, you know, I know this is a lot of work. You know, and I know you're tired, and I know you didn't sleep last night because you were reading uh, articles. Hey, but you can do this, right? And you're going to graduate. Um, yeah, you know, I still consider it one of my greatest accomplishments: uh, walking across that stage and having my impossibly long dissertation title read. Uh, because you know, it sucks. <laughs> I'll be honest; grad school sucked. Uh, working, you know, nonstop, work, uh, you know, all-nighters all the time, you know, and just you're never off and, you know, and you have no time for anybody in your life. Your relationships suffer. People get divorced, right? But it's, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it as an older individual, but let me tell you, we've had some people, we had a couple, um, we had a woman, she was in her sixties getting her PhD, you know, and she was, she retired and then wanted to do it and she stuck with it as well. So, I mean, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter like where you're at in life, you know, you can, you can do it. So very humbling experience. Um, you know, you realize at that point how much you actually don't know about the world. And so I think it's, you know, admittedly, I was starting to develop a bit of an ego and I think that rightly uh, humbled me. Uh, and so I'm very thankful for that. That's really good advice for people have those little cheerleaders in life is how I see them. Oh man, just that, that one person. <laughs> I need more than one person, I'll be honest. I need a couple. <laughs> right, if you got those, if you got that positive experience, I mean, if you think you're independent, you don't need that, you're a rock. I mean, just, I, I was that person and I had that same line of thinking, hey, but man, don't you need that encouragement in your life, no matter who you are, you know, just to, just to be able to know that, yes, wow, I'm actually making progress towards something or, you know, I'm not just lost completely. Yeah. So even though you don't like to super plan your future, do you have a dream project or paper that you'd like to, to write or or work on a dream project. So this is the this is the mark of every college professor. It's like we want to have that thing, that dent that we make in the universe. You know, um, you know, we want to invent penicillin <laughs> and just help people. We want to create that that next model that everybody uh, that everybody follows. You know, and. If I could in some way, if I could in some way um, find a way to make it easier, make it more um, likely that businesses are going to essentially really be involved in the local community and work together, not, not just, you know, in kind of a vapid sense, just a surface sense, you know, where we're donating some cash to charity, but like actually 
working towards solving serious global problems like you know climate change and uh, human rights violations and things like that, um, then that would be uh, ultimately uh, uh, ultimately <laughs> you know, something that I would absolutely love to do. Um, so yeah, if I could somehow make a, a, a dent in the my tiny a dent on my tiny tiny little universe, you know, a lot of people, I mean, you probably don't even realize that there are people out there that actually research corporate social responsibility. <laughs> you know, people don't, I like, well, I, I tell people, thankfully there are, it makes me feel a lot better about the world. You know, I, I tell people I'm a business professor and they're like, you, what do you research in business? Like, what the heck is that? You know, and I get that, you know, we're a very, very niche, niche subject. Yeah. So from what you understand, do you see that the world is heading down a good trajectory with maybe putting their money in some better places? Or what yeah, do you see? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thankfully, the whole attitude of society is evolving. So we as people, you might not realize it, but we actually have a lot of power over business. Okay. It takes a lot of our own effort, all right, in order to get them to change. But a our you know decades-long commitment as a population, as a group of people, to you know helping the environment and you know trying to be better about uh, our energy usage and recycling, things like that. It's actually putting pressure on corporations, and we actually do see. Uh, corporations moving in this direction. So there is this thing, it's called the Global Reporting Initiative, the GRI, all right? And it is, uh, uh, basically it's a reporting framework, okay, that uh, companies can, you know, fill out where they uh, list um, things like, you know, how, how much energy are we, usage, are, are we using? You know, uh, you know, what are we doing to protect uh, human rights? Okay. Um, how are we performing in relation to the environment and things like that, okay? Um, in 2000, 21 years ago, right, um, a dozen companies might have published a GRI report, okay? And now uh, in 2021, the start of 2021, basically any Fortune 500 company, any large company is going to publish a GRI report. There's thousands, tens of thousands of companies that do this, okay? So a lot of people are getting on board. A lot of people are getting on board this idea that as a company, you know, you can actually do good for your bottom line. You know, you can make more money if you do well in the community. If you help people, if you're a good corporate citizen, you know, you can actually be a better business. Okay. And so we see that in the big corporations and all the time we see that in small business as well, which go, go buy small business. Go support your small business, all right? Um, they are, small businesses are so tied to the community and they're always doing, uh, you know, stuff with relation to bringing up the area around them. So business, yeah, can have a transformative force. And I think a lot of people wouldn't say, wouldn't agree with me because, you know, the good things don't really get reported in the news. It's always the big scandals. It's always, uh, you know, the big controversies, the controversies. And yeah, I mean, rightly so, we should call attention to them and punish them accordingly. But, 
you know, a lot of times, a lot of the good things that corporations are doing just, you know, flies under the radar. Yeah. Well, I know I'm a huge fan of doing what I can to like vote with my dollars, mm -hmm. being as intentional as I can be to, you know, spend money on, on small businesses or businesses that I know who do stuff for the environment, whatnot. I once had this idea and maybe this exists, which is why I'm asking you. That, Ooh, I like yeah, these. Somebody should make an app where like if I'm standing in, you know, in Target and I want to buy toilet paper, which toilet paper is the most like environmentally friendly, socially responsible company here in this aisle? Like, could you scan all the barcodes and will could this app tell me? Yes, like um, something like that would be a lot of work but um, it could be very valuable. Um, I've, and so you, you'd basically scan the barcode of a particular product. Yeah. Talk about- you Give like a rating on like, is this company like friendly to women? Is it have diversity initiatives? Does it, you know, just whatever question I care about. Yeah, or what like, or just the product itself. Like what was the carbon footprint that went into making this particular product? Yeah. You know, no, it'd be super cool. Um, because one of the thing, one of the things that we have a problem with as consumers is, so your average person, I mean, you're walking into the store and it's not like this for a lot of purchases, but for like the small stuff, you know, if you're looking at, you know, buying yogurt or something on the, on the, on the shelf, the average consumer, I mean, you spend like, like seven seconds or something like that making a decision. Okay. You know, and th that consume, they're not going to be like, wow, you know, were the, the dairy cows on this farm, you know, how were they treated? Were they pasture raised? You know, uh, what was the carbon footprint? What was the supply chain like? I mean, where was this product shipped from? How much carbon uh, emissions went into, you know, producing this? It's like, you know, people aren't gonna ask these questions. Right. <laughs> and so, or they're not gonna take the time to research. So if you had something where you could just boop and then find out about this product, okay, that would be a huge transformative force, I think. Or at least, uh, you know, open up the, you know, make everything a lot more transparent. Yeah. Do you have any other ideas or suggestions for listeners who want to start making some of those decisions, but maybe don't know where to start? Right. I mean, a, a lot of it is you um, can educate yourself actually pretty easily um, about a lot of different products, a lot of common products. Uh, that you buy. There's a lot of misinformation out there. You know, a lot of people that push agendas, you know, on both sides of the ideological spectrum. So, you know, choosing a trusted source. And then ultimately, I mean, for me, it's just you know, looking at kind of like the, my staple consumption patterns, like my staple things that I do, all the things, the things that I'm buying regularly. All right. And trying to uh, you know, find ways to uh, reduce either my usage or make more uh, sustainable, uh, sustainable decisions about that. So really, honestly, I mean, it would be a big help if everybody just, you know, spent a little bit of time to educate themselves about kind of like their mainstay products. And even that would be very good in terms of, uh, uh, of making an impact on the environment. You know, you don't need to be a guru about, you know, all of the different intricacies of a sustainable supply chain or a fair trade product or something like that in order to, you know, really start to 
you know, make a difference as a consumer for sure. That's a good point because I know it, it's very overwhelming and I don't know what to trust. Okay. <laughs> I actually had another question about business here. Sure. Absolutely. So you've for told sure. us a little bit about what people can do at home and kind of the dream mark that you'd like to leave on the world. Uh, how about, how do you define success in business terms, like for a business? Like what, do, what is a successful business? So a lot of people, you know, a lot of people approach this differently. All right. I mean, if you are a large kind of uh, dispassionate corporation, um, you know, obviously we define it as um, as money. I mean, the more profitable you are, the the more money you make, the more the more successful you are. And actually, especially in the United States, we're very fixated on that as a measure of success. Okay, more so than other countries. And because we're so fixated on profitability as a measure of success, that actually has led to um, a lot of kind of these not good behaviors that we that we see and a lot of you know the the negative reputation that businesses have okay other businesses okay um maybe you know don't have that same definition of success sure profitability is a necessity all right no matter who you are you're you can be a non-profit for-profit whatnot you need to make money somehow in order to pay the bills, pay people, or accomplish your mission, all right? It's just a fact of life, okay? But for some, you know, beyond that, okay, success is more about, you know, are we accomplishing what we want to do? Are we helping the population? Are we, you know, creating our dents in the universe? Some small businesses, you know, they don't grow, okay? Because the owners have no desire to grow their business uh, any larger than what it is, all right? You know, because making millions upon millions of dollars, you know, isn't their, isn't their goal. They define sec, uh, success in a different way, right? And that might be connecting with the community or supporting their family or, or, or something like that. So yeah, we do define, a lot of businesses traditionally have defined success as just profitability, but a lot of corporations out there, I mean, especially ones that are more mission-driven, mission-focused, nonprofits, things like that, success to them or profitability or money, okay, is really just a means to an end, a means to an end. So are we accomplishing our mission? Okay, I think actually should be um, uh, the measure of success for more, for more businesses. That's really interesting. Uh, the way that you describe that, it sounds so much like something that could be applied to the individual too. Right. You know, a lot of people like, so and it's, man, think about like how it, so as an artist, what is your, what is your measure of success? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, is it fans? Is it Instagram likes? Is it having your piece in the MoMA or something like that? What's the. Well, yeah, everybody would answer that really differently. Right. Uh, I've, been trying to figure that out. For me, I think the highest measure of success is having creative freedom. Mm -hmm. So being able to do as much work as possible, um, 
that I'm fully in charge of. Right. And yeah, that's what, and I, I actually, I really, I'm intrigued by this topic, right? Because yeah. the way that we eat, everybody talks about success is, is different. They're based upon our own wants and desires and things like that. All right. There is, um, there's a, a philosopher name's Rokich. He developed what we call terminal, or he thought about what we call terminal values, the values that drive us. Okay. So for some people, wealth might be the terminal, the end state that people want to be at. So that might be wealth. It might be family. It might be uh, religious. So uh, achieving some sort of religious ideal, for example, or, you know, uh, a life of hedonism, for example, you know, I, I just want to go and seek pleasure in, in, in all things or a life of adventure or something like that. So we're all driven by different things, right? And then, so not only do we have different end goals, but then what, how we measure our success kind of changes over time too. Like, I mean, think about when you were a kid, man, you were a big deal. You were a badass if like you were successful, if you had like the biggest Lego set on, on the block, right? That's how you know mm -hmm. you made it, okay? But then how do you know you made it like as an adult, how do you know you've arrived? Like, right. is it because, I mean, because I have millions of dollars in the bank account, okay? Um, Will Ferrell gave a commencement speech to, um, I think it was, I think it was USC. Um, and he was talking about his measure of success, like how he defines success. And you know, it's Will Ferrell, come on. Like the guy's been on SNL, he's you know, dozens and dozens of movies, he's hugely famous, okay? You would think, wow, you know, he would talk about like his career and you know, how, how successful he's been in that. But no, he's like, no, honestly, I'm successful here because I've been married for 16 years. I have three wonderful children. And I, uh, I think he, he talks about like I, how I donate to this, how I contribute to this you know, charitable foundation. And that to him, that was successful. Yeah. You know? No, so that's some so cool. Yeah. So some people want the bling, you know, to them success is being noticed or it's, you know, having cash. And to some people it's just, you know, have I succeeded in, in my goals in life? What, how would you define success for yourself? Yeah. And that is, that is something that I have, I have struggled with. All right. I think because <laughs> like I said, imposter syndrome, right? I always think I'm going to like, uh, you know, get found out as a fraud, right? And uh, not, uh, uh, you know, not be able to do this anymore. Uh, for me, I've always kind of like, I've always had this little creeping like existential crisis where I have, you know, questioned the validity of my work in the sense that, you know, I'm doing all of this work with regards to corporate social responsibility. I'm writing a bunch of papers that are only, you know, basically a research paper. Yeah, you know, they get read by other academics and cited by other academics. You know, are you, uh, or you know, they're not really getting disseminated out into, you know, the, the broader community and things like that. So to me, um, a measure of success would be, you know, am I making an impact? You know, am I, am I influencing you know, people in, in, I would say, what I feel is the right direction, you know? is what I'm doing, does it actually matter? You mm -hmm. know, and that would be, that would be, um, that would be a measure of success there. And, you know, ultimately I, and this is kind of a cliche definition, but you know, am I achieving the, 
goals that I've, I've set out for myself. Okay. So, I mean, last year during COVID, um, financially, I think I was, I mean, I was okay. I, I was very thankful to keep my job and uh, be able to support myself. So financially, I guess you could somewhat say, okay, yeah, this person was successful, but professionally, no, I was not. I was not successful last year, right? Because I did not achieve my goals. I did not make an impact. Um, and that is something that I want to uh, correct uh, in the future here. So is teaching students a part of that goal? Oh, of course, absolutely. And I mean, again, when you're, when you're educating, it's, it's, it, this surprises me every time because sometimes you get this kind of creeping self-doubt, you know, like I said, that existential crisis, like, what am I, what am I doing? Am I even, am I making a difference? Is, is what I'm doing, does it matter? Right. And as you're lecturing students day in and day out and holding, you know, seminars and exams and things like that. And then, like I said, you know, you need to have that person in your life. Every once in a while, I'll get a student that will come back and say, wow, you know, thank you so much. I, I really you know, thought about this in a, in a different way because what we had talked about, you know, and then you just kind of like grab your chest a little bit like, oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Are you serious? Like I actually, <laughs> you actually cared about what, what uh, the material here, and so yeah. those little wins, those little wins are are so good. They're so good, you know, because um, they don't happen very often, and mm. it, it's good that they don't because I think you probably get too used to them. Uh, but I I don't know. Maybe I'm just cynical as an educator, but it seems like. You know, uh, as an educator, those wins don't seem to happen very often. Um, yeah. So people no. out there, thank your professors if they made an impact in your life. <laughs> yeah, actually, thank anybody that makes an impact in your life. Well, actually, I really, I relate to a lot of that. I, I guess I should have added this into my definition of success, but I do feel like half of the definition of being an artist for me is not just making the work, but the other half is bringing that work to the general population. So I can't, for me, I can't just be like sitting in my studio, making something out of sticks, waiting for everyone to understand why. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's Jasmine the with her stick art exposition. <laughs> I have made, I have made a little, couple of stick castles, pretty funny, but. <laughs> you you know. think about like what aliens would think of, you know, so we look back at, like little, you know, artifacts and stuff from archaeological sites, you know, from ancient civilizations. And we think like, oh, this must have had some super religious significance. You know, this must have meant something to this culture. When in reality, this sculpture could have just been some kid like fucking around and like, you know, carving dicks onto on the balsa wood. Right. You ever think like aliens would think like they would see, you know, some you just make some <laughs> BS with sticks, you know, just playing around and then they see that and they're like, oh, my gosh, they must have you know, worship like tetrahedron shaped gods or something. I know. I mean, I have to say, especially in the last 50 years, like what would the aliens say about a lot of contemporary art? <laughs> right. <laughs> Some of it I do love and I work on appreciating it all further, but a lot of it I'm like, man, how not, is this going to be interpreted, sure interpreted by our new alien overlords? <laughs> 
that that could be an interesting. Why don't the stairs meet? Why is everybody upside down? <laughs> Why are their faces melting? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that says a lot about the kind of work that you do. Like, could an alien understand it in any way? <laughs> what would the alien think without the context of culture, current current culture and society? Right. It's just tricky because so much of art is influenced by where we're at in society. But at least for me, I I want I find it for it to be influenced, but I don't want it to be like stuck, stagnating in like a decade or something to where the thing I made only is relevant to a decade. Right. How do you create something that is timeless? How do you create something that is enduring? You know, that yeah, inspired by the times, but yet timeless, it's tricky. Right. Absolutely. I like what you said that, you know, you you have this duality where you both have to create and present, you know, and a lot of us actually are kind of in that same uh that 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 same boat in the sense of what, what we do i mean we have to get it out there and, and present it to the world and for success that's can be kind of nerve-wracking for a lot of people because it it's very vulnerable uh, it leaves you very vulnerable you know my work i have to write and research but then i have to present to the broader community you know and you know you have to grow a thick skin sometimes <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I know I don't like doing interviews or anything like that, um, but I still sign myself up for them whenever possible. Right. <laughs> it's part of the hustle, right? You got to get the hustle going. Yeah, I mean, I, I also have this thing where if I'm uncomfortable, if I'm, if I'm afraid of it, I know that I have to do it so that hopefully in the future, I will not be afraid of it anymore. Ah, you got like that, uh, you like that uh, kind of measured exposure to something. That's the theory. Yeah. And you know what, guys, everybody out there listening, that works. Okay. Let me tell you, whether you're trying to overcome a peanut allergy or you're trying to be better at anything that terrifies the crap out of you, it works. All right. I, when I first gave a lecture to a class, I uh, was so scared. <laughs> Like I walked in there, I was so nervous, you know, voice cracking, things like that. And just like pointing at the PowerPoint sides, like, well, today we are going to learn about business and yada, yada, you know, it's just horribly mon But now it's like, whatever. I just go in there and I can have fun with it. And it's just like, I'm talking to, you know, just friends or whatever, and just having a conversation with people, you know? And so, yeah, exposure therapy mm -hmm. I think can go a long way. If, if you don't want to do something, then like you said, Jasmine, I'm so, I'm so glad that you do that. I'm so glad you brought that up. If you don't want to do something, that's even more of a reason why you should do something. Yeah. I, I think it's very important for people to understand about doing anything that might appear to be frightening. Yeah. But like I mean, oftentimes the person zone, doing it is still frightened. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh my gosh. And see, that's another thing we don't realize. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I thought, you know, People just had like, you know, were, were confident, uh, just had a grasp on everything and just were cool, you know, because that's, you know, when you, when you see like an actor or a performer or an artist or a musician, you know, do a performance and it just comes off seamlessly, things like that, you know, just think, wow, they must have like some sort of thing. And what we don't see is all of the anxiety that they've had going up and like their own internal monologue about how scared shitless they are about doing this particular thing. And it's like, we don't see that. We only see the external veneer. 
All right. So everybody's, I mean, we all, everybody goes through that. Everybody's scared to be up there and do that presentation or talk to that group or, you know, recite their poetry. All right. And so it's normal. You know, a little bit of fear is good. It, it motivates you. What's one thing that you wish a younger version of yourself would have known? Oh my gosh. I, man, what not to say on this one? <laughs> It's like all of the life lessons that you've learned, but uh, you didn't uh, you didn't listen to your parents at the time, or whatnot. Um, I would say, oh my gosh! So, I honestly wish I would have pushed myself a little bit harder when I was younger. Um, you know, I wish I would have been that voice uh, when I was a teenager, a young adult, uh, just starting out in college saying that, you know, you can do this. In fact, you should probably shoot higher, do more, uh, get out of bed and, and, and get to work. All right. And so, yeah, just, oh, I would tell my, my younger self, I mean, you need to have, there's, there's value in motivation and not saying I wasn't, I wasn't motivated. You know, I don't want to make myself sound like a lazy, whatever, but, um, yeah, just push yourself, try harder, shoot, shoot more you know, shoot higher, try to try to do something. Um, you know, it's because this is this is the thing we get this idea in our heads, right, that you, in order to do something great, okay, you need to be old, <laughs> have the experience, okay, and have, uh, you know, have the money, okay, and things like that. All right. That is simply not the case. Okay, absolutely, absolutely not the case. Okay, some of the most interesting things, most powerful things in the world have been accomplished by people, have, by young people. Okay, mm -hmm. you know, mid 20s, late 20s, things like that. I mean, Airbnb, for example, I'll use a business example here. Airbnb, right? Uh, if you've ever stayed there, I mean, it was started by like just some guys, like 25, no money, staying in San Francisco. No, like, and they're just like, how can we make some cash to pay rent? Right. So they, they let some dude crash on their, their air mattress. And that's why it's called air bed and breakfast. Okay. And they're like, oh my gosh, we can do something with this. Bumble, the popular dating app, Bumble. That was uh, a 22 year old woman. 20, well, I think she was like 23 at the time or whatever. Just left Tinder. She helped found Tinder. She left Tinder. And then she just went out there and, 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 and did this. And so it's like, we, there's all this self-doubt, you know, about our own, and like, oh, I can't do this because, you know, I don't have the degree yet or, you know, nobody's going to take this seriously and stuff like that. And I wish I would have just told myself that, you know, no, none of that matters. Okay. None of that matters. If you put yourself to something and can try and try and try hard and you have a good, um, uh, a good idea and you work towards it, you know, you can accomplish it no matter how old you are, you know, no matter what your resources are. Right? People get on kids, you know, all the time, like, you know, freaking making fun of Mark Zuckerberg for being just a, a super young CEO of, of this growing company, Facebook, but you know, he did it. I mean, obviously there's a lot of controversy over him and Facebook, but just from a, just from a personal standpoint, I mean, he was a young guy when he pushed this thing through. I mean, controversially, of course, but you know. Yeah, I think that's so important. 
but yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's such a valuable lesson for people. It's interesting how sometimes like being naive almost has a sense of power to it. I can see that with younger people. I mean, I'm a younger person, but it's like when you don't know what you're not supposed to be able to accomplish, then you don't have that barrier. Right. And it's like, you've, <laughs> you know, you've not been exposed to like all of the molds that people are trying to put you into and things like that. And so, yeah, just being able to like, Hey, let's try it. Let's do it. <laughs> Approaching that thing with that naivete. Sure. That would be great. Yeah. It can be empowering for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think I benefited from it a lot um, coming into art, not having gone to art school. I know a lot of people who've gone to art school have all these different ideas that I have no contact with. (laughs) Do you think art school would have influenced your art or would have been, you know, liberated it? Um, I mean, I, it's still like up there in my possibilities of like, maybe I should, uh, get an MFA at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if I would have gone in college, it would have destroyed me. Like at that age, I wasn't ready. I didn't have my voice, my, or, you know, know what that was. And I think I would have allowed it to be crushed, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But now I feel like it could help me. I, I actually might, maybe I have a lot of maybes, but if I go back, it would probably be for sculpture, actually. Oh, interesting. And because okay. I think. I don't think I could go for painting. I think that would just be, be too close to what I do, but I'd like to learn something new and learn how to express the same voice in a different language. That would be cool. Oh, that's great. That's super cool. But it's not at all top of my list. That would take take a take a long time to get that accomplished. When it when it if it does rise to the top, I'm sure it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that naivety has helped you accomplish anything in your life? Oh my gosh. I think, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't follow kind of a traditional path towards becoming a college professor, you know? And so I think, you know, there was a lot of that behind it, you know, just not really caring about the mold and then just jumping in. I mean, it's still a nerve wracking process for sure, but yeah. Um, and I would like to say that, you know, as I've gotten older, as I've, um, you know, have more professional experience that I have branched out and not become kind of what we would say, like institutionalized. Okay. But yeah, so I mean, I guess it is easy to kind of like lose that, uh, that joie de vivre of, of youth, such a way once you've experienced, you know, and you've been inside kind of the, the bureaucracy and, and, and the institutions and, uh, and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think it was a powerful force for sure. Absolutely. When I was growing up. If there was one thing that you could change about the world, what would it be? People, you guys need to stop being so stupid. <laughs> Right. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. All right. The level of willful ignorance that people can have about a subject. All right. Is insane to me. And I apologize if I'm offending any of your viewers here, but right. If you have a phenomenon and you can look at 
all of this data that disproves this phenomenon, all right, and still stick your head in the sand and think, oh, no, it doesn't exist. It's just some crazy hoax conspiracy, you know, by the Illuminati or something like that, all right, then what is, what is going on here? Um, so, for example, I, I'll start off with like... Uh, I was really wondering about this example. <laughs> I know, I'm trying to... I'm gonna like I'm gonna piss somebody off. Like there's gonna be like, but I'm gonna get a bunch of emails like, but 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 have you considered this? <laughs> like flat earthers, for example. Okay, we know, we know, we know that the Earth is round. Okay, we've known it was round uh, uh, for th thousands of years. Actually, I mean, there's this myth that we were thinking it was round or flat up until like the Renaissance. But in truth, um, Aristophanes, uh, oh my gosh, uh, actually computed. The circumference of the earth within five percent by looking at shadows and wells you know uh in in ancient egypt <laughs> so we, <laughs> all right we know the earth is round and we use that to uh triangulate our satellites that you're using to watch netflix okay right now all right and so there's all this data yet we have people and i don't still i'm maybe i'm looking too much into it maybe they're just doing it to troll everybody but um or even climate change okay we have all this evidence that it exists, okay, and that it uh, is is majorly impacting our lives, okay. And we need to do something. But people are like, nah, nope, it's good, right? Not 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 happening. <laughs> so, willful ignorance uh, is is something I would uh, I would change. But you know that's that's the thing, all right. Um, you know, somebody from 200,000 years ago, okay, it was basically at, at the same level of, of was at the same level of cognitive development as us. I mean, you could take somebody from 200,000 years ago and teach them calculus, okay, and they would probably have the same kind of cognitive biases and errors in perception that we have today. I mean, we have access to more knowledge, so maybe it's uh, we are more at fault for ignoring this body of knowledges around us, but right. I understand that, you know, as humans, just we're, we're flawed in the way that we have like biases and perceptions and stuff like that. But we also have all of this evidence around us, you know, to help us um, correct those or see through those biases. Okay. So why aren't we, why aren't we doing that? Why is it such a controversial, why is, you know, global warming such a controversial subject? You know, so yeah. Yeah. Um, that's definitely one thing I would change. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. I, I've thought about this for a long time too, because there are some things that just kind of blows your mind. Like how, how are this, how is this number of people thinking this right now? Um, but I do kind of question how easily it, or how, how easy is it to really access good information? Because I actually, I look for things sometimes. Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm a relatively educated, regular researcher, user of the internet. Right. <laughs> and it's... Uh, uh, AKA, I browse Reddit a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't use Reddit. But I do really try to look things up. And sometimes the amount of false information, it, it's just so overwhelming that I... I leave even trying to get the question answered. Oh, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. Um, I so mean, I kind of blame the internet. I, I called the internet the Google, Google 
companies. I'm Did you just call it the Google? Yeah, the Google. <laughs> the Google. I call it the Googs. <laughs> I'm I so I mad at Google. <laughs> I is a source banger of mine. Um, I think that Google, <laughs> dear Google, if you're listening, uh, yes, this is you. I think that Google is causing the collapse of truth. Honestly, I feel I, um, for me, it's social media. Mm -hmm. um, I used to, when I was, when, when social media was first becoming popular, like Facebook first came out and Twitter, the idea I was thinking, wow, this is great. This can be revolutionary. I mean, people exchanging ideas and being able to chat with people all over the globe and everything. And now I think it's just like this cesspool. I really think it's like this, like this cancer uh, on society in a lot of ways, because I mean, you can, a bad idea, okay, can be taken and shared and, inf and used to influence a lot of people. And we see this, we see people intentionally trying to do this, you know, in order to affect outcomes for anything like, you know, elections and things like that. You know, so yeah, it is very easy for false information to spread okay, across uh, across platforms like Google and social media. So yeah, I mean, as as a society, I mean, it's up to us to be even more vigilant about where our information is coming from and to be to have a healthy degree of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, yeah, you're telling me this, but you know, where are you getting this information? How was it conducted? You know, or how and, and and things like that, and just understanding, you know, the influences that uh, that these things in our life are having on us, for sure, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I agree, very much about about social media. That's a. Thankfully, I guess I'm not trying to use that for any of my research, so I wasn't even thinking about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> So thank you so much for having all of these conversations with us and being so honest. I mean, this was really like an, you know, like an insider's viewpoint of being a professor. How did you get there? And what else is going on in your life that matters? Right. Which has been super interesting. And I hope that it inspires a lot of other people out there listening who might be questioning themselves and whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, so Jasmine, what is, right now I'm going to put you in the hot seat. What do you, after this conversation, want to talk or want to tell our future alien overlords as they take these digitized tapes, as they pull them out of the rubble and dust them off and find a way to uh, decode them? I hope to give them an honest, authentic little snippet of what's going on around here. Sure. We're not all bad guys, aliens. <laughs> okay. We're all really, I mean, despite what you might've read on your, your holographic displays, we, uh, uh, we're not all bad. We're all, a lot of us are trying to do the right thing. Okay. And just, I do you know, hope that comes out of it. Yeah. Just live our life and, and, uh, you know, and enjoy ourselves within reason. So before we wrap up here, uh, I have, an important question for you. Sure. What challenge would you like to give the listeners to complete for this week? You're in charge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I didn't know 
that I uh, uh, I had so much control over your, oh my gosh. So what have other people done? What have other people done? So I must admit, this is only the second week we're doing this. Okay. Um, last week's challenge was have a conversation with a piece of your furniture. Ooh, have a conversation. Oh, I'd love to see, oh man. I have no idea what I would tell like my chaise lounge, you know, or your dining room. Like, what do you, what do you say? <laughs> Yo, how's it hanging there, buddy? Actually, the idea came up um, accidentally. And then I figured I've got to keep doing this. <laughs> so let's see what we come up with here. It can be a mental challenge, a physical challenge, a thought challenge. All right. So we've talked about... A lot of things here. We've talked about some topics in business. We've talked about doing stuff that kind of gets you out of your comfort zone, do stuff that, uh, that you're afraid of, okay? Um, doing things that you know, kind of push you and maybe uh, challenge you and things that you uh, weren't, uh, uh, you know, didn't think you were gonna be able to do, all right? I want you to buy something completely mundane, like a bag of gravel from the pet store and try to sell it to a complete stranger. <laughs> hey, best good sales pitch, um, you know, bonus points. If you can, if you can, uh, you know, make this happen. Okay. But the more mundane, the better. <laughs> Any kind of reward. If the sale occurs, you will get, uh, <laughs> A signed picture of me with my thumbs up saying, great job. Perfect. <laughs> okay. That's out there, guys. All right, well, Jasmine, I would like to say uh, thank you so much for, uh, you know, for having me on. Um, you know, absolutely love talking about these things. And uh, yeah, you know, I wish you good luck with everything here. I think this is uh, an amazing thing that you're doing. Thank you so much for jumping in and coming to the Archives for Aliens without, I think, knowing much about what's going on. <laughs> I hope to have you back in the future. Yeah, it'd be but great. We can Thanks. dive in a little bit deeper into business or fencing or just life. Sounds great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it.